Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. Hello and welcome back to Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. You are joined as always by me, Geordie Morrison, and Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Fertility Specialist. Hi, Geordie. And today we welcome back Dr. Zipporah Ben-Harim, the lead gynecologist at Women's Health Melbourne. Welcome, Sippy. Thank you. Today we're continuing our series on personalising PCOS and we're talking about ovulation induction, which we've never covered before. And I can't actually believe we've never covered OI. We've talked about it in our previous PCOS series, to be fair, but that was a long time ago and we haven't really broken it down as an episode in its own right. Exactly. And when we talked about this as being part of um, our PCOS series, you said it'd be great for Zippy to join us. As she helps patients who are undergoing ovulation induction at Women's Health Melbourne. Ovulation induction, the name might be a bit self-explanatory, but tell us, what is it? So ovulation induction is a way to assist women that are not ovulating regularly um, to achieve ovulation. So the background is quite often some kind of an ovulation disorder, either not ovulating at all or ovulating very infrequently and and difficulty in, in achieving pregnancy. And we're talking about ovulation induction in terms of PCOS, but can you be ovulating irregularly or not at all if you don't have PCOS? Yeah, so ovulation induction doesn't necessarily equivalent to uh, trying to get pregnant with PCOS because there are other disorders that lead to ovulation induction. There are women in which the whole axis does not work. We call we call it hypo-hypo, so the whole the pituitary gland is not working or is underworking, and that leads to an underworking ovary. They need ovulation induction if they want to conceive. Um, so there are quite a few groups that will benefit from ovulation induction when wanting to get pregnant. So one of the very important points that we made about diagnosing PCOS in our other episodes is that PCOS is a diagnosis of exclusion. So before we start trying to help a woman to conceive by trying to regulate her cycle and induce ovulation, ovulation of course meaning the release of an egg and if you don't release an egg you can't get pregnant so it's pretty important. Part of our workup is to make sure there's nothing else going on and when we talk about ovulation induction there are various ways that we can influence the ovary to achieve ovulation but they're not all suitable for every patient. So it's really important that we first make a correct diagnosis so that we can help choose the right treatment pathway that is going to be successful for a patient. Um, Success rates are different for different diagnoses and the best treatment is different depending on the cause for um, ovulation disorder. 
And as a treatment, what does ovulation induction do? Ovulation induction is a treatment that assists women basically have an egg follicle mature to the stage that it can pop or ovulate. And this is what we do to um, assist with fertility in women with PCOS, in women with uh, hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism, which again is a reduction in the whole axis. And there are some other small groups that can benefit from ovulation induction, but to a lesser extent. And what is the pro- what is the process for a patient who is being treated with ovulation induction? So a patient who is being treated with ovulation induction for PCOS will get a very different regimen prescribed of, of medication than someone who has another reason for ovulation induction. Uh, and I think it's really important just to reflect back on our diet and lifestyle episodes and we will be having other episodes in this series focusing on PCOS modulation through diet and lifestyle because often I find with my patients PCOS is not a stagnant condition. Women aren't stuck in a in a particular point which is never going to change. So part of our therapy is trying to get that woman out of that ovulation rut and get her into a whole body situation where she's more likely to establish a rhythm. And sometimes it's worth noting that those diet and lifestyle changes are enough and at a certain body weight and with a certain environmental kind of set of changes, a woman sometimes does just find a rhythm by herself. And we often do prescribe other medications as adjuvants to that, such as metformin, which helps a woman find her kind of balance in terms of insulin resistance. And sometimes that alone will help a woman get over that threshold and start to ovulate with PCOS. But ovulation induction medications can help somebody get further if if those measures alone are not adequate to overcome the barriers to ovulation in PCOS. And what we're really trying to do is we're trying to kickstart the process that naturally happens in the body when a woman ripens an egg in a natural menstrual cycle. So we can use medications to kind of emulate that process and create those hormonal changes that start a ball rolling. So I I like to think of it like a ball rolling down a hill. Once it's started rolling, it'll keep rolling. And what we're trying to do is just give that big boulder at the top of the hill a gentle push and send it running down the hill so that ovulation happens and the opportunity for pregnancy is there. Um, Just to go back to ovulation induction and the the, uh, way we choose or the the medication we choose, again, it's so important to know the underlying cause because the long-term consequences are different if it's PCOS or if it's a hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism in terms of complications for the pregnancy and in terms of long-term consequences. So one has a high risk of a metabolic disorder and another one has a high risk of a low level of estrogen and the consequence for the bones and other organs. So it really is important to get to the bottom of the problem. Are there times when ovulation induction is not the right course of treatment for a couple? Ovulation induction takes us back to baseline. So if somebody is not ovulating, 
then we need to start an ovulation pattern so that there's an egg released. And if everything else is normal, sperm can then find the egg and make a baby in the natural normal way. When we're treating a couple with infertility and an ovulation is only one piece of the puzzle, but there are other aspects to that couple's situation, other barriers to getting pregnant, then we have to consider the whole picture. So, for example, if there's a severe sperm problem that's not reversible, getting that egg released is is maybe not going to be enough to help that couple get pregnant. So what we do is we investigate a couple holistically and always in our practice for fertility, we ask that male and female partners in a heterosexual context come together because otherwise we only have one kind of half of the situation under our under our vision, under our kind of radar, if you like. And there's no point a woman doing six months of ovulation induction only to then find out there's a major sperm problem and maybe we should have been doing IVF right from the beginning. Nobody would be happy to find that out. Or there might be a male factor problem that we can investigate and potentially might have reversible aspects to it that we want to work on right from the beginning. So I think it's really important to point that out. There are other situations where for female reasons, ovulation induction may not be the right thing. Like for example, if there's also barriers to sperm and egg getting together like blocked fallopian tubes. So when Sippy and I see patients for the first time and we're thinking about ovulation induction, both of us would, would I would agree, and Sippy, you can comment to this, but we would usually do a full evaluation before making that choice or, or talking to a woman about that choice. Absolutely. So in infertility, ovulation disorder uh, explains just part of the big picture. So we need to, you know, investigate it thoroughly to make the right plan. And some women that are not ovulating, um, even if that is the problem, will not benefit from ovulation induction. For example, women with um, significant ovarian insufficiency with a very low egg reserve, the chances of us getting pregnancy, like getting a baby at the end, which is the goal, are quite low. And we need to use stronger measures to try and get pregnant. Absolutely. If someone has been doing ovulation induction, I'm not sure how it works, three months, six months, and they don't have success, what's the next step? I would usually, in in the course of ovulation induction, I would usually counsel a woman that what we're trying to do is return her fertility to what it would naturally be and that would give her about a one in five chance of getting pregnant every month. So I always discuss that ovulation induction is something that we can do over several months and if it doesn't work immediately, well that's not really such a big concern and doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to work. Usually what I would recommend is checking in and making a review appointment every three months so that we can discuss what's happened, where we're at, what the next steps are going to be and what the options are if pregnancy hasn't occurred by that stage in time. If I haven't foreseen any other barriers and three months go by and a woman's not pregnant with ovulation induction, I would generally be very happy for her to continue for a further three months before 
thinking about other options as long as there's no other factors that are serious in her circumstance. In terms of other factors that might influence us, things like a woman's age is very important because while someone who's young would have a one in five chance of getting pregnant every month they try, when you get closer to 40, it's more like a one in 20 chance per month that you try. So the chance of getting pregnant per month for a woman is very much related to the quality and metabolic competency of her eggs. And just because you have a whole heap of eggs in polycystic ovarian syndrome doesn't necessarily mean those eggs are of high quality. You can have paradoxically a high number of low quality eggs. Mm. And that happens to us all as we do get older, that it becomes the exceptional rather than the average egg that can make a baby. When we're younger, I tend to try and take the pressure off a woman and a couple because we've got time and You know, certainly if a woman's under 35, having a go for three, six months, you know, even up to 12 months if they want to with a lower intervention policy or a lower intervention strategy is not going to necessarily impact their long-term chance of success if we need to escalate to another therapy like IVF. Whereas when a woman's over 35, the chance of higher end technologies being successful are very much lowered according to her age. And so I think it's reasonable to escalate to those higher end therapies faster, especially if she has a dream of having more than one child over a period of time. Because in that scenario, freezing embryos can help her achieve that goal, even as as her biological age passes on, her egg quality declines. IVF also gives us options to use other technologies which might be relevant to a particular couple. So for example, a woman may have PCOS, but she may also be a carrier for a genetic disease and her partner may also be a carrier for that genetic disease and they may be at risk of having a baby with a severe genetic problem. If that's the case, rather than offering ovulation induction and diagnosis in the context of an existing pregnancy to check for the baby being healthy or not, we can also discuss whether we go straight to a technology like IVF where we can use genetic testing of embryos to ensure that we screen out embryos before a pregnancy to make sure that a baby is going to be healthy and that will sometimes be a choice that couples do make. So there are lots of different circumstances. And, you know, what I would say is that every woman and every couple are unique and their their circumstances need to be taken on board and discussed with them before making a plan. And also what we try and strive in our practice is to take their preferences on board. Even though I might say to someone who is over 35, hey, maybe, you know, these are the advantages of a technology like IVF, they may say, well, look, I don't really feel like doing IVF is something I ever want to do, so what else can we do? And I'm very open to that. So I think we have to take on board a patient's medical history, make sure that they're fully aware and cognizant of all the options in front of them, offer them choice, and then proceed with a treatment plan in a partnership. 
Absolutely. So just to remind everyone that the, in a normal fertile couple, the chances of getting pregnant within a year are about 85%. So it's not that even if everything is normal, it's not that every month there is a 100% chance of getting pregnant. So with ovulation induction, basically we are trying to restore the same thing. So obviously every cycle we are very hopeful that we'll get pregnant. But if it didn't happen, that doesn't mean that this is um, this is failure. Um, that can happen in a natural cycle and that can happen in an induced cycle. And in an induced cycle, we're trying to recruit one follicle. So obviously we're trying to mimic nature. We're not going to have very high success rates. We're trying to mimic nature, so we need to give it a bit of time. As opposed to the higher technology in which we're trying to recruit many eggs. And obviously, in some circumstances, that will increase our success rates. CP mentioned something very important I think we should talk about with ovulation induction, and, and that is that we are trying to recruit one follicle and release one egg. Sometimes we find that medications in a person's body don't necessarily respond exactly the way we intend them to. So in ovulation induction, occasionally we prescribe a regimen and instead of there being one egg ripening, we might get two eggs or three eggs or four eggs (laughs) that we see. Um, And we know this because in our practice we use ultrasound monitoring so that we're aware of firstly, if a regimen is working, because not every patient will respond to every dose we try and that's okay. It's a learning curve. Frustratingly, sometimes not every patient responds in the same way to the same dose every single month. And that's because we're not machines, we're people and our body has biological variation and different stressors and environmental factors do affect how we respond to medications. If a patient does undertake ovulation induction in our practice we always talk about the risk of multiple birth because it is a known side effect of ovulation induction certainly if we're monitoring a cycle we wouldn't necessarily cancel that cycle and tell a patient not to have sex if there were two follicles coming and depending on a patient's age it might even be reasonable to let them have a go if there were three follicles coming. But our consent forms in our practice always do talk about the risk that we will cancel a cycle or recommend cancellation of a cycle. And that is if there are four or more follicles coming, we will, we will very much recommend that uh, under, very, under most circumstances because of the wish to avoid having a triplet pregnancy or a quadruplet pregnancy or a quintuplet (laughs) pregnancy or any high order multiple pregnancy. Sippy, can you talk a little bit to us about about that aspect of ovulation induction? Yeah, so it depends which technique we we are using and it depends on the background diagnosis again. Um, so PCOS and hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism will react in a different way. In PCOS, our drug of choice usually is letrozole, or we can use uh, Clomid, which is another option, and that uh, reduces the level of estrogen temporarily in order to increase um, 
the level of hormone uh, coming from the pituitary gland, that usually leads to one follicle recruited, but it can lead to two follicles. So about 5 to 10%, I would say probably 5%, will end up with um, two follicles. The chances of triplets or so three follicles or four follicles are much lower. So it's very unlikely to happen. Now, it sounds very tempting. Well, I'll get two for the price of one, but that's not quite true because the risks for the pregnancy are higher uh, when we go up uh, with the numbers. Um, twins is high risk and triplets and more are very high risk. So I would really, really discourage uh, a couple from having triplets or more. And twins are high risk, especially if this is the first pregnancy. We do monitoring, so we should be able to identify how many uh, follicles are being recruited. Um, and if it's three or more, I would be very concerned about an ongoing pregnancy. Do you often see more than one follicle when you're doing an OI cycle? Maybe it's worth talking about the different drugs because there's different risks for different drugs. So CP was quoting risk for letrozole, which would definitely be first line. And in the PCOS guidelines, um, it's quite clear that letrozole around the world is now considered first line. What's happening in PCOS from an endocrine perspective is that we never get a nadir. We never get a drop in estrogen to a really low level, which the body needs to kickstart the next menstrual cycle. So imagine the drop in estrogen to a really low level, like jump-starting a car on the next menstrual cycle. That's what our body needs to jump-start a menstrual cycle. With letrozole, we give a drug that inhibits the enzyme that turns testosterone in our body into estrogen. So while you're taking the letrozole, your body can't make estrogen and you experience a real nadir at the level of the bloodstream. And estrogen at that low level detected by the pituitary gland is what incites your body to jumpstart that next cycle. With other medications like Clomid, Clomid doesn't actually drop the estrogen level. Clomid is an estrogen receptor blocker. So the estrogen level may still be baseline. It might not be at that nadir that we need to start a cycle. But Clomid binds to the estrogen receptors in the pituitary gland, actually in the hypothalamus in the brain. And the brain can't detect the estrogen because its receptors are blocked. So it thinks there's a nadir, but there isn't. <laughs> but it thinks there is. Clomid has a long half-life, which means the amount of time that it binds to that receptor can be quite long. So as your follicle-stimulating hormone starts that ovulation cycle, what's meant to happen is a follicle is recruited, the follicle starts to make estrogen, the feedback loop notices the rising estrogen, and that is what turns off the follicle-stimulating hormone signal, which tells our ovary to recruit further follicles. With Clomid, because it's blocking receptors in the brain, even though the estrogen is rising, it inappropriately stays on that receptor and keeps it blocked. So, you know, sometimes what happens is that regulatory mechanism that normally helps us make one follicle ripen and have one egg release in the cycle is messed with, with Clomid. So there does tend to be a higher rate of 
multiple pregnancy with Clomid than with letrozole for that reason. We also can use follicle-stimulating hormone directly in a pen and sometimes we do use that in polycystic ovarian syndrome, particularly if somebody is what we call resistant to the oral medications. And some people are resistant to oral medications because their PCOS is so strong and so intense. And so sometimes instead of giving them that indirect boost in follicle-stimulating hormone, we give follicle-stimulating hormone itself. Now that's an IVF drug and, you know, in IVF we ask your ovary to make heaps of follicles <laughs> and in ovulation induction it can be a really fine line and while our goal is to get one follicle or two involved in the cycle with follicle-stimulating hormone in an injectable form, you can very quickly go from doing nothing to over-response. So that is something that needs intensive ultrasound monitoring. And when we do ovulation induction with FSH, we actually ask patients to come in every second day for an ultrasound. So it can be quite intense. Um, another thing I sometimes do for patients who need follicle-stimulating hormone ovulation induction and they have a very narrow range between not responding and over-response is I sometimes do prepare them for IVF as a rescue scenario because if they do over-respond and they are prepared from IVF from an organisational perspective, from a consent perspective, then I can turn that into an IVF cycle and rescue the cycle for them. Whereas if they're not set up, that won't be possible because we can't prepare for IVF in such a short period. So there will be the occasional patient every year that, you know, it's a very narrow difference between not responding at all and over-response. And sometimes we do turn to IVF for those patients um, rather than ovulation induction because it actually reduces their risk of multiple pregnancy and high-order multiple pregnancy, which we can control in IVF by putting back one embryo at a time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So with PCOS, we go low and slow in order to avoid recruitment of multiple follicles, but um, especially in the first cycle. First cycle is a bit of a trial and it can go that we we do injection for a few days and nothing is happening or we do injection for a few days and we have quite too many. So yeah, it's a dose finding cycle. I agree. So first cycle, we, we try and figure out how your body's going to respond to this medication. And a lot of the time, CPU you would get it right because of your experience and you know, holistic workup, but sometimes we need to adjust our approach and patients don't always, you know, kind of respond at all. Sometimes you'll give a course of medication and you thought that was probably quite a moderate dose that the patient would have a good response to and they do nothing. <laughs> yeah. And then we start again. Yeah, that happens. That happens. Now, with women with hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism, the management would be different. So, to me, there is no point in giving them letrozole or clomid. Uh, we need to start with gonadotropins. And as opposed to women with PCOS, which have um, which have luteinizing hormone and need just FSH, women with hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism do need a bit of LH for development and progression. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And a really hard group is those who have dual pathology. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really hard group because some women with a polycystic ovary can have hypothalamic suppression and and that actually happens more commonly than you might think. I certainly have a few patients every year in that situation and, and they tend to be in that group that I prepare for IVF rescue because what happens is they have a naturally quite polycystic ovary and through their diet and lifestyle over the years, they've self-regulated it by doing intensive, hardcore exercise and becoming very skinny. And then they can move into a situation where they're not ovulating and we don't know what it is. Is it their polycystic ovary with their very high AMH or is it their intensive exercise regimen and hypothalamic communication problem or is it a bit of both? And so that's where working for a little while with diet and lifestyle can help unmask and change our management a little bit because sometimes those ladies when they stop their intensive exercise or tone it right down might not need any medication at all so it's always worth I think just a little bit of a patient approach with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Uh, I think what happens is we spend a lot of our life not wanting to get pregnant and then we come to the conclusion, okay, I'm ready to get pregnant. I want to be pregnant right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I think with PCOS, if, if you're taking a low intervention pathway, if we want to get a woman pregnant without any kind of IVF style intervention, a critical ingredient is commitment and patience. For a new patient for whom you've worked out that ovulation induction is the best course of treatment, what is the process that that patient should expect? All right. So assuming that we've done, we've investigated everything and ovulation is the only problem. So the tubes are patent, the sperm is normal. There is no, there are no other obstacles except for rectifying ovulation. Then we need to know the right diagnosis or the right underlying cause for uh, the ovulation disorder. If it is PCOS, I would recommend letrozole as the drug of choice as a first line. Just as long as we've done, we've tried, if we're overweight, we've tried losing some weight, we're exercising in moderation, right diet. So we've done all the lifestyle changes that can assist us with improving uh, chances of ovulation. The drug of choice is uh, letrozole. Um, letrozole can be taken either on a, in, during normal menstruation or some women don't menstruate and need a drug to bring that. So we use a course of progesterone to get withdrawal bleeding post-progesterone. And then during the period, we start taking the tablet and the tablet is taken for five days. Some side effects that can happen with letrozole and with Clomid as well is with the reduction in the level of, with the decline in the level of estrogen, either real decline or perceived decline. Um, they have side effects which are, can be hot flushes and feel, feeling quite yuck. It's temporary. Um, the estrogen level will go up. And so just remember, it's very temporary. And then we start monitoring um, the uh, few doses that we can use and especially the first cycle is a trial cycle so 
we use a pretty standard dose to start with, and then we need to monitor and see if um, there is response, if, an, if a follicle is recruited, or if there is no response, and then reassess whether we can continue just follow up and trigger, or whether we need to amend our plan to try and recruit a follicle if the initial dose has not brought any response. So I would always say that a cycle either ends in ovulation or pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what we do. Because we, if, we, if we don't get a response for a first course, we'll give another course mm-hmm. within that cycle. Mm-hmm. So the cycle either ends in a period or a pregnancy. And if it's a period, we commiserate and we try again. And if it's a pregnancy, well, then we just make sure that there's hopefully one baby <laughs> on board. Hopefully one healthy baby makes sure that everything's good and um, we'll see you for your next baby. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you very much. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. 